to diverge away from the theme of the weekend. And I want to talk about the positive pattern of the New Testament assembly. And I'll begin by reading some select readings from the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 is the beginning of the description of how the tabernacle was to be built. And of course, at the beginning of this chapter, God talks about some of the materials that will be required that will have to come from the people. And then he says in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall complete it, you shall make it. And another verse in the same chapter, quoted in the epistle to the Hebrews, is is verse 40. And see to it that you make them, that's all these instructions he's been detailing, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now we understand that the true tabernacle is in heaven. God showed Moses a picture of it and also instructions for its replica on the earth. And then bringing those instructions down off the mountain to the people, they began the construction of this building. And it was according to a very, very precise blueprint. Now let's move on. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to move to Ezekiel. If that was true of the first tabernacle, it will also be true of the millennial temple. Ezekiel chapter 43, I believe it is. Verse 10 will begin with, Son of man, describe this temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms, all its laws, write down the whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now I'm going to back up and read just select words through that section. He says, describe, measure, design, arrangement, design, ordinances, forms, laws, design, ordinances, law. So clearly he is giving a very explicit pattern to how this millennial temple will have to be built. Everything that is to be in the temple is included in the pattern and anything that does not belong in that temple is not in the pattern. So these are just basic principles of Old Testament understanding of how God gives his people instructions regarding their corporate worship. Now let's move forward to Acts chapter (coughs) 2. And at the familiar verses 40, 41, 42. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day were added, uh, sorry, that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, 
I might say a little bit more about this passage in that because there are a couple of following verses that I want to distinguish from these central, pivotal, I would say, uh, seminal verses 41 and 42. I do want to say one thing on the way by. What is being described here is a doctrinal fellowship. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. This is an entire corpus, we might call it, of teaching. Not all had been committed to, to the scriptures, in fact, very little at this point. But as the canon of the scripture is put together, and as the, the role of a prophet, for example, bringing the word of the Lord directly from heaven to the people for their present need, and the, the, the role of the other sign gifts that we have in the New Testament, as they became unnecessary and the Bible finally reached its completion, we now have the whole counsel of God given to us in the scripture. Now, that is a book of doctrine. When you and I learn doctrine and we say, I agree, you agree, we agree on this doctrine, we have what's called fellowship. Fellowship is sharing. You can share food, and that's fellowship at one level, but this is spiritual food, this is divine truth. And when you and I share that together, we have fellowship. So truth is required for fellowship, and when we have the truth and both accept it, all of us accept it, we now are in fellowship with each other over the truth of the Bible. Now how do we express fellowship? Well, our verse tells us, there are two principal ways where the church expresses fellowship. Number one, they break bread together. Number two, they pray together. That's why the order is as it is here, and why the punctuation is as I'm about to explain it. They continued steadfastly, courageously, persistently, loyally in what they had been taught so that the apostles' doctrine was the basis that they stood on. And they said, we believe this. We're going to proclaim it. We're going to stand for it. Not only that, but we're going to express it in our assemblies. And what we were going to do that is, first of all, the chief meeting of the church, the breaking of bread. That is the way you and I express doctrinal fellowship with each other. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with each other. Our fellowship is the sharing of divine truth. What other ways can the assembly, as a group, express its fellowship? By praying together. Okay, so that's why the order is... It's the Apostles' Doctrine and the fellowship built on that doctrine, fellowship expressed in the breaking of bread and prayers. That's the structure of the verse, okay? A couple more verses I'd like to read. Let's move over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you just as I deliver them to you. So this is the baton imagery where a person has something valuable in his hand, takes it to a certain level and passes it off to someone else who then takes it unaltered, unchanged, just intact and pristine as he found it or she found it, and away they run to the next person. It's the transference of truth one to the other, one generation to another, from the apostles down to the people in these assemblies. Paul says, I'm going to praise you. Uh, There's some things I'm not going to praise you about later in the chapter, which we don't have time to talk about, but I'm going to praise you for this. You keep those traditions just as I gave them to you. You say, well, I don't know. We don't think much of traditions these days. We're tired of them. We want to get rid of traditions. Well, these are not the traditions of men. The Bible has no time for the traditions of men. These are the truths of God that have been traditio, have been been trans, uh, I'm going to use the Latin word here in its original meaning, they have been given over to you. And so they are a precious deposit, a trust, right? They're a stewardship. 
and we have them and it's our job to keep them and protect them and proclaim them and pass them on without altering them. One more reading, First Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And then we'll be done with our initial readings. Second Timothy, rather, 1, verse 13. Hold fast the pattern. Now, we're used to that word. We've met it way back in Exodus 25. We've seen it <coughs> repeated essentially since then. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. That means health-giving, spiritually healthy words that you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That's the whole, that's the whole package. We hold truth. We hold it intact. We hold it in faith. We hold it in love. Right? We're never cold scholastics. We love this truth that we're holding. We're faithful to it because we love the one who gave it to us. And so this is a big deal to us. We love this truth and we are going to hold it as a pattern of sound words. And not only that, but verse 14 goes on to say this. The good thing, and that's kind of an understatement, the good thing, the Bible, the traditions, which was committed to you, keep. And now we have the Holy Spirit coming in to help us. So we have our inner motivations and we have the divine grace of the Spirit to make sure that these truths are again believed, practiced, and passed on. So far, so good. Any conservative Christian would agree with everything I have said pretty much so far. What I would like to emphasize is that the same view of the Bible that led to the Reformation and then led to the recovery of assembly truth and finally went to the climax of the Philadelphia church, as we would call it, if you know what I'm talking about historically, which is now past pretty much, although there are still some Philadelphia elements remaining in the world and will be till the Lord comes. That is the faithful church, okay? We're in the Laodicean age right now where there's more departure than there is faithfulness, but thank God there is still faithfulness. So we um, are in a... I don't remember how I started that sentence. I may have to start over. <laughs> I'm not going to say that again, but I, um, <coughs> we, we are... Yes, I know what I was talking about. The view of the scripture. That's what really I want to get to, not all the tangents. Okay, the view of the scripture is this. Sola Scriptura. By scripture alone. That was the watchword of the Reformation. The Bible is a complete, perfect book. In it, Paul says, the man of God is completely furnished thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable. It is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, if we need that, and we do, for correction, if we need that, and we do, so that the man of God may be completely outfitted and equipped for every good work. So that's a pretty high view of scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means that when God gave us the Bible, he gave us not just a guidebook, not just a set of initial ideas, not just a good starting point, but he actually gave us the entire counsel that he would want to have us use and love for the entire church dispensation. That is until the Lord comes, right? And so in that, we have to understand the Bible's own view of itself. The Bible's view of itself, and we can show this from the pattern verses that we read in the Old Testament, is that the whole presentation was given to us as a positive pattern. Now, this is very easy to explain with a blueprint, because a blueprint 
is specifically made to construct a building. And the blueprint has everything that the building is to contain, and that everything the building is not to contain is not in the blueprint. So the architect who makes the blueprint does not expect the builder to be improvising here and improvising there, adding extra rooms, putting the roof line at a steeper pitch, whatever. That is departure from the plan. It's possibly not aesthetically pleasing and possibly not structurally sound to do that. This was, this was designed with a very specific set of rules in mind. And so when we approach the Bible, the same thing is true. When the Bible says we are to do something, we are to do it. This is properly interpreted. We don't bring sacrifices and offer them on Sabbaths anymore because that dispensation is passed. But when we come to church truth, when the Bible says we should do it, we should do it happily, humbly, willingly. And if the Bible says we should not do something, then we should not do it. Now, on that basic starting point, most Christians would agree. There are some who don't agree. They want to massage certain passages of the Bible that don't fit with their ideas. They may not agree with head coverings or the silence of women, since that is seen to be a very controversial, uh, patriarchal type you know, thing that just doesn't fit in with modern thinking. So they'll massage those chapters. They'll find some text that doesn't contain it and say it's not original, they'll, which is not true, by the way. Uh, you know, they, without going into how they might attack it, they may want to just set aside clear commands for their own agenda. But putting that aside, every God-fearing person who really respects the scripture is going to want to obey whatever he or she sees it says. So far, so good. Now, in a positive pattern, we come to the thorny point. What do we do with silence? What do we do when the scripture does not speak on the subject? Well, if the scripture does, by the way, the scripture speaks on about every subject, but often in a very general way. The scripture does not say that you should be a farrier and should shoe horses. You might want to do that and you're looking for divine guidance. You won't get that explicit divine guidance from the Bible. What you will be told is that you are to work with your own hands, that you are to work industriously, that the laborer is worthy of his wages, and that if you don't work, you really have no right to expect to eat. So you get the basic principles of work ethic. And how you play that out in a specific job is up to you. That's not where the positive pattern really impacts us. Where the positive pattern impacts us regards the house of God. It is no different in principle than the Old Testament tabernacle or the Old Testament temples in that God had very, very specific demands and designs in mind. Now, to be sure, it's a different dispensation. All of the colors, all of the materials, all of the rooms, all of the, uh, you might call it, procedures that had to be done in that Old Testament economy have been extremely simplified in the New Testament so that we have a pattern that consists of only really four symbols, maybe five. Baptism, in a sense, is symbolic, right? The Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine, the covered head of sisters in the assembly, and the uncovered head of men. Other than that, there is very little physicality, perhaps no physicality at all, to the New Testament pattern of gathering. That does not mean that there is not a pattern, and that does not mean that silence still has to be properly interpreted. So in a book that is just giving you guidelines, true guidelines, and again, many God-fearing people will accept the Bible in this way. They'll say, if the Bible doesn't prohibit this practice, it's allowed. You say, how do you know it's allowed? Well, it's not prohibited. 
so if it's not prohibited, we're free to do it. Aren't we? Then they'll trot out some phrase like, aren't we free in Christ or something like that. Well, you're not free to disobey, of course. And the question is, comes down to the proper, I'm going to use a big word here, hermeneutic. Okay? Hermeneutic is a way you interpret the Bible, a technique you use or a process. Hermeneutics, with the S, is the study of Bible interpretation. And where you and I perhaps differ from people who are God-fearing people and want to please the Lord, but don't see, for example, assembly truth in the New Testament, where you and I differ from them is that they're looking at the Bible as a great starting point and a set of initial ideas, but they are not looking at it as a positive pattern. If they were, they would understand that the truth is not this. What the Bible does not prohibit is allowed. The truth is this. What the Bible does not allow is prohibited. I'll say that again. The general feeling in the book many Christians take is if the Bible does not prohibit something, it's allowed. You add your programs, you add your instrumental music, you add your 5K runs, whatever you want to add to it is fine as long as it's not inconsistent with some clear prohibition in Scripture. It's not, it's not proscribed or it's not, um, it's not um, disallowed, whatever. You're not allowed to do it, right? I'm looking for the right word. So that's fine. What is that? That's relativism. That gives you a complete open field to do anything you want. As long as it may seem spiritual or there's some consensus in the church governing body, it's fine, apparently. And that's why we have so many denominations today. That's why Christendom is so split up. Because people are not thinking of the Bible as a complete positive pattern. They're not saying sola scriptura. They're not following the tradition of the Reformation. They're not taking the approach of those brethren who recovered the truth in the 1800s, but rather they are reverting to a pre-Reformation view of the Bible and not even knowing it. When people have different worldviews, or when people have different methods of interpretation, they'll talk past each other, right? You see this on the protesters on the corner. Keep abortion legal on one side. You know, it's a child, not a choice on the other side. Now, they're dealing with the same basic medical facts, but they have a different worldview, okay? They have a different set of assumptions. They're looking through different glasses, so they'll never agree with each other. Now, that's a serious moral issue, and we all agree on that issue, I trust here. But when it comes to interpreting the New Testament, we have the same problem, people talking past each other. Because one set says the word of God is complete and is going to thoroughly equip me and my assembly for every good work in this dispensation. What it says I will do, what it says I should not do, I will not do. And where it is silent, I will respect that silence because it is a positive pattern and not institute anything that is not authorized. Now, I can't in this short time give you a, a detailed defense of that, but I'm going to give you, I've given you a little bit of a defense of it, just looking at some of the scriptures that we've done. But I think I just want to keep it at a more practical level and the trust that you can do this digging for yourself. Nobody, as I said, who is willing to obey the Bible has any issues with the precepts. I'm going to use the P's now, okay? Precepts. What's a precept? Well, the commandments. This do, don't do that, right? Where it comes in a little bit more difficultly is with principles. 
because the New Testament, in the age of the Spirit of God, with far less physical constraints and far less details as we would have had in the Old Testament, is the place of the liberty of the Spirit of God. We see this liberty working, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, where the assembly meeting is described and the various ways one contributes and the importance of edification and doing it in love and all these great principles are brought. We're supposed to read that and understand that this is the model for us to follow. Uh, yet it's descriptive, isn't it? it? There are some commands in that chapter, but we're also to imbibe the whole spirit of the chapter and the whole structure that these people use by apostolic authority to carry out their church meetings. All right. Some principles, though, um, would be open to different interpretations. And that's okay. I think that's okay. Let me give an example. The greatest principle of all in the Bible is what? God is first. Now, some people say because God is first, the meeting that is most directed toward the worship of God, the morning meeting, as we call it, the breaking of bread, even though it's a supper, we're going to have it as a breakfast, we're going to bring it at the beginning of the day to show its importance. I think that's a very sane way to argue. I wouldn't be legalistic about it. There are places in Iowa, for example, that say, yes, it is the most important meeting, therefore it should not be first. You say, what gives? Uh, well, they say, look, you need to be in the proper frame of mind to go into that meeting. We believe a Bible study before the breaking of bread really gives God his first place by preparing the people of God for the meeting. Now you say, oh, you know, there's your positive pattern blowing up in your face. You've got two different ways of looking at it. Well, this is just a matter of principle. They're both breaking bread. They're both following what the Lord's Supper is about. They're not adding to it or subtracting from it. They're simply going into a procedural difference based on the different way of interpreting a principle. Another principle is that when we give money to the Lord, it is an offering. It's not just cold cash that he can use in some sort of non-spiritual way, but is in fact a sweet-smelling offering to heaven. Some assemblies will say, well, because of that, it's very appropriate to take that bag and put it on the table afterwards because it really is an offering to the Lord. Not that the table is an altar, but to show that this is something that is being given to the Lord. Does the New Testament command that? No. Does it tell us to give to the Lord? Yes. On the first day of the week? Yes. According as the Lord has prospered us? Yes. But it doesn't tell us whether to put it on the table or not. I'm, what I'm getting at is this is not a totally inflexible uh, philosophy of interpretation that I'm suggesting to you. Now, we come from that. First, we talked about precepts. Then we talked about principles. I want to talk about practices now. This is where the sticky wickets come. We come to Acts 2, 42. And we're told, we just read it, talked a little bit about it. The disciples, after they had preached the word, many were saved. And we go through this process. Saved once. Baptized once. Added once. Three onces. Then we have four ongoing things. Participation in the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. That's the lifelong commitment that follows being A, saved, B, baptized, and C, received into an assembly, right? Now, shortly after that, we're told that they had all things in common. Well, if they're going to break bread together and share the Apostles' Doctrine, maybe if we're going to say the Acts is normative, maybe we should say that we should sell all of our goods and have things in common. Now, this is where you have to use your brain, all right? You have to think. 
if that was to be, you have to, first of all, in a general way, be careful with narrative. Narrative is there for a reason. There's no padding in the Bible. Everything has a purpose. But narrative that is designed for us to follow and to be what we call normative is going to be reinforced in the epistles, number one, and there will be no exceptions to it. It will be the uniform practice in the New Testament, such as the breaking of bread every Lord's Day, every Sunday, with the Lord's people. That's a practice, and it's a precept both in the New Testament. Now, when it comes to selling all your goods and uh, giving, you know, having some sort of communal assembly life, uh, we know that that was not maintained through the New Testament. We know that that was a one-time sitch that happened at that time because of the, uh, the, the circumstances in Jerusalem, and that, on the very contrary, there were people who voluntarily sold their goods in Acts chapter 5, but they were right to retain them. There were people who owned houses and had assemblies in their houses. And there are many examples of that in the New Testament. So it is not a consistent New Testament teaching. It is, in fact, just a one-time situation that, frankly, was not wise and was reversed by the apostles because it didn't work, as communism never does. Right? Then it says they were breaking bread from house to house. Well, it just said that they were sharing at the breaking of bread. Maybe it means you can have the breaking of bread meeting every day of the week and at anybody's house. But that's to misunderstand what's being said. It's not the breaking of bread, which is not a technical term. It's simply a term for having a meal. Okay, But the Lord's meal, based on the apostles' doctrine, is not the same as having soup and sandwich with the believers Monday through Friday. You're talking about a social setting, not an assembly setting. Um, there were love feasts and, you know, whatever that it works. We're not going to go into that because of time. So this just requires us to be a little bit uh, careful with how we interpret things. On the other hand, when narrative in the New Testament, the book of the Acts particularly, tells us that the apostles did something, our default position should be, we should consider this carefully and see if we can get any evidence from the rest of the New Testament to document whether or not this is something that was intended to be normative for the church age. So Paul shaves his head after his vow is complete, and we say maybe we should shave our heads and do vows. But it doesn't bear the test of relevance, first of all. This is a, something a Jewish man is doing for Jewish audience. Number two, it doesn't bear the test of consistency. That is not a New Testament principle that is taught anywhere else. That's one of those historical transitional elements in the Acts. So I admit, I admit, this is not entirely straightforward. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why we sharpen each other. Iron sharpens iron. We're trying to get to the basic pattern. But just to sum up, because it is now at the end of the hour, half hour, um, here's where I'm going with this. Despite the fringes where we might have some disagreements and maybe even legitimate different ways of doing things. The core doctrines of the New Testament assembly are to be taken and understood as a positive pattern. Only saved and baptized believers belong to an assembly. An assembly is a group of Christians gathered locally to the Lord's name. They're all saved, ideally, all baptized, ideally, and they should be. I mean, we wouldn't accept them if they weren't, but let's say they lied to us, whatever, okay? So we, we take them on face value with that. Uh, there are, of course, some people who get into assemblies who aren't saved. Everybody who gets into an assembly gets in by reception. People who leave assemblies leave either because they die and are promoted or they 
possibly because they have left the truth that they were brought up with, or they leave because they are excommunicated for a moral or doctrinal reason. But you see, I didn't begin being in an assembly when I was saved, and I hope with the Lord's grace and help I will be in an assembly the day I die, but then not necessarily, right? That is a completely different entity than the Lord's body, the church which is his body. There is no basis for gathering with local believers on the, on the fact that you and I both belong to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is all about positional truth, not practical. The body of Christ is not even complete. It's under construction. The body of Christ is a dispensational entity that will all be gathered in one place for the very first time, only at the rapture. Before that, it is under construction and has certain principles that may be useful to us but does not guide church practice. I, I, can't, I would love to expand on that, but I don't have time, so we're not going to do that, all right? We have these baptized believers who meet together they, every week, like the apostles did, because they find the New Testament pattern compelling. The positive pattern speaks to them. They're going to have the Lord's Supper every week. In that Lord's Supper, they are going to partake of one loaf and one cup. They are not free to have multiple cups and to have multiple loaves, because that is clearly proscribed by 1 Corinthians 10. Well, they say, well, you have too many people, and people have, you know, whatever. We're saying um, positive pattern. Why are we altering this? This is exactly what the Lord wants. It's exactly what we're going to do. They have a plurality of co-equal elders. These co-equal elders, of course, um, are not above the flock. They are among the flock. They lead by example. They take the collection on the Lord's day and they use it for the furtherance of the gospel and for the Lord's work. I could go on. You, you know what an assembly is about. You're all part of one, right? What I'm saying is there was an era. This is with this I close. When good men taught us these things and we, many of us were compliant enough to believe them and practice them and carry them forward, but maybe maybe we were a little bit lazy. Maybe we weren't, weren't like the Bereans. Maybe we weren't quick enough to think and to examine the scriptures ourselves whether these things be so. And I say in this age, you can't afford to be that way. You cannot afford to be that way. You must know the things that are most surely believed among us. And if you don't believe them, have scriptural reasons for it and tell us what they are. But if you do get a scriptural footing, you can't be shaken. So let's remember that the Lord's pattern for the assembly was designed to maximize his glory. Yes, indeed, it is all about him. And every conservative Christian group, even denominational ones, since the Reformation, many of them have understood that. And they have said, in the worship of the Lord, we are not going to bring in human innovation. We're not going to bring in popular ideas. We're not going to bring entertainment in. We're not going to make this appealing to the flesh at any level. Because it ain't about us. It's not the flesh that's supposed to be entertained here. This is all about him. And if my mind is like the mind of Christ, and if I'm sanctified and I'm devoted and I'm warm in heart, I'll enjoy it just like the Lord does. But at the end of the day, whether I enjoy it or not is not the question and not the point. Right? It's about him. So you talk about, you know, there's so many things I could do and I can't do them. 
Patternism. What's patternism? Patternism is saying, patterns everything. Doesn't matter what you do in your heart. Doesn't matter what your Christian uh, ethics are. As long as you're keeping the pattern, you're good. No, you're not. Okay, you're not. God hates people who keep external rules and are far away from him in their hearts. That's a strong language, but I mean, I think that's the case. Here's the thing. It's not either or. It's both and. Why do we settle for anything less than both and? The Bible wants both. He wants a devoted heart and he wants an obedient life. To say, well, my heart's obedient, but my life doesn't need to follow is a Bible contradiction. To say that my life's okay, so it doesn't matter what's going on with my heart, is a travesty. Both. So let us remember to keep, to the best of our abilities, those truths that have been committed to us.